Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today we have a great interview for you. I chat with Lexi Walls. She's a postdoc researcher at the University of Washington, and she actually kind of predicted the global pandemic. She was working on coronaviruses and spike proteins before we were seeing them all over the news. We talk about that experience and more in this episode. Um, if you can, subscribe to our channel, leave us a like, comment. Um, also want to give a shout out to Kendall Investor Relations. Uh, they're our sponsor for this episode. We really appreciate you supporting Lady Scientist Podcast. And if you're a biotech entrepreneur out there looking for some help speaking with investors, please reach out to Kendall Investor Relations. I'll put the link below. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Lexi Walls. Well, I'm really glad you reached out and we get to chat today about your research because I, you know, I've read a little bit from some of the articles that you've been in, um, but I think you've had this really interesting experience um, with regards to the global pandemic and the fact that you uh, have been studying coronaviruses for a while now. Um, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess before I even jump into the questions, I just want to introduce Lexi Walls, um, who studied coronaviruses for her PhD and is now working on vaccine and therapeutic development at the University of Washington. I'm really excited to ask her all of my uh, coronavirus questions and get into some of the nerdy biology there. Um, so welcome, Lexi. Thanks for having me. So you defended your dissertation right on the eve of the global pandemic in December 2019. Can you walk us through what that experience was like and, you know, maybe some of the first things that you heard about with regards to COVID and what was happening and like how, you know, what that was like? Yeah, honestly, it, it's not that long ago, but it feels like centuries ago, given how much we've learned and changed and done in the last year and a half. Um, but yeah, so we started hearing, you know, whispers that there was, you know, some infections at like, you know, beginning to mid December 2019, but nothing had been confirmed, nothing had been identified. And my boss and I were like, what if it's a coronavirus? You know, just wondering. Um, because it was respiratory, we were like, okay, it could be influenza, it could be coronavirus, it could be a paramyxovirus, you know, just going through what we knew. Um, and when we finally found out that it was a coronavirus, it was surreal because, you know, this had, this had happened twice in the past 20 years, you know, first in 2002 with SARS uh, and second in 2012 with MERS. And then for it to be happening, you know, as I'm wrapping up, as I'm trying to, you know, leave, figure out my next steps, and then boom, we're in, we're in it. Um, it was surreal, and it still is surreal most days, actually. <laughs> I can imagine. How, how did you get your start studying these types of viruses? Like, were, was there, you know, were you kind of deciding between different types of viruses and then settled on this one in particular? And what, what led to that decision? So it sounds kind of crazy to say now, but I started studying coronaviruses in 2015. Um, and at that time, we didn't know very much about anything coronavirus related. You know, there had been a very small tight knit field that had been working really steadily to, you know, make gains and understand these viruses. Um, but when I started working, there was no structure or no real vision of what the spike protein, which as many of you have heard about, um, which is on the exterior of the virus, really no vision of what this looked like. And so that's kind of where I got excited and stepped in. I was like, this is a place I can contribute that, you know, there's a clear gaping hole of knowledge. Let's see what we can do. Um, and so we had kind of this knowledge gap and also this new technique called cryoelectron microscopy was really, you know, exploding and coming to the forefront. And so it was kind of this perfect merging of, you know, cryo-EM and really an understudied field that got me excited and interested. Um, and I'm still here. <laughs> wow. Are there other major players, you know, as far as this scientific field that are, you know, that were working on coronaviruses at that point in time? Like, 
were there collaborators that you were talking to at other organizations or, you know, was a lot of your research really independent? No, uh, we, one thing that's been really fun about my PhD and beyond is we've had tons of collaborators kind of all over the world, um, which has been really exciting and nice that, you know, I was, I am in a structural biology lab and we've morphed into, you know, a virology, a vaccinology lab, but we really brought the structural biology expertise and we collaborated with a ton of other groups who brought the virology um, and the biology really expertise that we learned from them. Um, and without this merging of all of these expertises, we would not be where we are today, for sure. <laughs> Fascinating. So, so you had a paper, right, that, that kind of summarized a lot of your academic research from your PhD. When did that come out? And was, you know, how did that coincide with like the global pandemic? Yeah, so I was really lucky. I published quite a bit in during my PhD. Um, so during my second year is when we published the first structure of a coronavirus spike protein. Um, and basically since then, we've kind of consistently been publishing, you know, first structure of a coronavirus spike protein in, um, in one confirmation. And then we really tried to understand what it would look like in a different confirmation. And we've slowly been building this knowledge arsenal, basically building up to 2019. And so right before, you know, when I defended, I had this whole presentation where I was like, you know, coronaviruses, they have pandemic potential. This is why I think they have pandemic potential. This is why I think we need a vaccine or we need a therapeutic because there before 2020, there was no vaccine for any coronavirus. You know, SARS-2 is not the first coronavirus that infects humans and we had nothing ready, but luckily, you know, the scientific world was ready, <laughs> so. Why do you think that was? I mean, because aren't, are, aren't there some, aside from the um, type of coronaviruses that cause respiratory illness, aren't there other coronaviruses circulating? And like, cause I, again, I'm not in the vaccine space. So I'm just curious why we didn't necessarily have a vaccine yet for something like that. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of ways we could answer that question. Um, I think one of them is, you know, really until 2002, when severe acute respiratory syndrome or, you know, SARS, the original SARS was, was discovered and was shown to be, you know, really deadly in humans. It had, it has a 10% fatality rate, but it was only about 8,000 infections worldwide. You know, it was able to be contained. And so, you know, after about a year and a half, people kind of dropped off, you know, research picked up because everyone was like, what, what is this virus? What is this virus family? Let's learn something about it. But Unfortunately, you know, funding and interest is really driven by, you know, need. And there have always, it's always been known that there are coronaviruses that cause common colds. And, you know, growing up, you're always like, why isn't there a vaccine against the common cold? Like, that would be so great. Um, but the truth is like the common cold, while it affects all of us and it sucks and it's terrible, um, there's you know, not a driving desperate need for this type of vaccine. And so I think the money and the push just wasn't there because, you know, now that we've gone through the whole process, it takes a lot of people, a lot of money and a lot of dedication to get even just one vaccine through the door. So yeah, I think it was a number of factors. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned um, that your dissertation work predicted that these types of viruses could cause a pandemic. What were the factors that led you to make that type of statement? Yeah, um, so there's coronaviruses that infect humans, but there's also coronaviruses that infect a whole host of different animals. And, you know, I hadn't done very much of this work, but a lot of our collaborators and colleagues in the field had shown, you know, it only takes a few mutations to take a coronavirus that's purely able to infect bats, for example. If you mute, mutate the spike protein in one, two, three locations, in cell culture, you can get that to infect human cells. And so that really suggests that, you know, these 
viruses are poised to jump from species to species and it just takes time and maybe even intersection of these species for the virus to have this opportunity. They're really, you know, three mutations is not a lot, like they are ready. And we all had known this for a while and unfortunately we all are living it now. <laughs> yeah. So, so people were working on like, what was that happening, you know, while you were getting your PhD, like that type of work and you were familiar with that? Absolutely. Research. So they're engineering these viruses to be able to infect human cells. Um, they're not engineering them. They're trying to figure out why are they infecting only bats? Why are they infecting only humans? What mm -hmm. is the molecular determinant that causes, you know, this to be a bat specific virus, this to be a human specific virus. And you don't have to do this work with viruses. We work with pseudoviruses all the time, you know, so mm -hmm. there's nothing infectious about this sample. It's literally just the spike protein on a backbone of a cell. So it's not, it, you don't even need the whole virus to understand mm -hmm. what allows the spike protein to bind to a cell, to enter a cell. Those are kind of the basic questions that we, the field work trying to answer. I see. And from, from like a, a safety perspective, that type of research, you know, because for instance, I, I work with viruses, but from a therapeutic perspective and engineering cells to overcome a, you know, particular disease state. And a lot of that work is in what we call biosafety level two. Um, type of facilities is that is the research that you're talking about is that also considered like biosafety level two or is it yeah because it's not like I said it's not even a virus it's literally just you know we have a single protein that's associated with coronaviruses the spike and mm -hmm. we say okay we know that it can bind bat ace2 what mutations would it take for it to bind human ace2 and you're literally just mutating a protein there's nothing yeah nothing replicative about this at all. Mm -hmm. Just trying to understand, you know, what, what does it take to change from species to species? Sure. And, and so what you're saying is that the, the risk of a pandemic from these types of viruses really comes down to the fact that it wouldn't take that many mutations for it to be potentially really, um, transmissible or infectious i'm not sure like what the what the right word is there but is that the gist of what you're saying yes and then i also have two other reasons okay so that's one reason another reason is you know if you look in the last 20 years there are only two viruses that have emerged novelly for the first time ever mm -hmm. and both of those are coronaviruses you know this is if we just look at history it's going to repeat itself. So it was kind of a safe bet to say, this has happened twice since 2002. Why can't it happen again, right? Like we've seen it happen twice, why not again? So that's kind of another reason that we were all, you know, predicting that these viruses could jump from animal to human species. Sure, but what about Ebola? Yeah, but Ebola uh, had outbreaks back Before. into the 60s yeah SARS okay, and MERS had never ever been discovered never been known there's never you know in recent history there's never been known to have a deadly coronavirus so SARS was the first MERS the second mm -hmm. and unfortunately SARS-2 the third and you said you have a third reason yeah the third reason is if you go looking in you know animal reservoirs in bats there are hundreds if not thousands of coronaviruses there that you know we have we haven't even tapped how many viruses these like that are present in bats but it means that there's really a large species diversity and like i was saying it just you know when will there be mutations that allow them to stop being bat coronaviruses and move into human or civet or pangolin or camel you know we've had all these intermediates and it just takes unfortunate mutations that allows that to happen. Interesting. From a, a species 
to species transfer. How, how would you say that, by the way? Because I feel like I'm not saying that correctly. No, I think you are. Transmission, okay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Zoonosis is another right. word. <laughs> I mean, how... I guess my question is, like, it just seems odd that we could get a virus from a pangolin or a camel. I mean, maybe a bat, right? Like... <laughs> They're, they inhabit a lot of like similar areas. Their feces could, you know, maybe there's a bat living in my attic and it's, yeah, hopefully I not. don't know. <laughs> like, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> like, I think, um, you know, it's happening not just with coronaviruses, right? We hear about avian influenza or swine flu. You know, this is happening with a lot of different you know, viruses and probably also bacteria as well. Um, and I think it's just, you know, we come into close contact with animals way more than we might realize. You know, we go, people work on farms or go to zoos or anything, or, you know, it can happen anytime. And part of the problem is, you know, we're in, like humans are encroaching on animal habitat. And that could be one of the reasons we're seeing so many emerging viruses is we're really, you know, pushing the boundaries and getting closer and closer to a lot of animal reservoirs. I see. Interesting. Um, so I want to get back to your dissertation work. Were there any kind of standout days for you where, you know, maybe you saw the structure of this protein for the first time? And can you share that experience with us? Yeah. Um, so so typically, you know, I was a biochemist by nature and I sort of, you know, joined the structural biology lab and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I had never used a microscope before. I had never opened the terminal on my computer before to do any sort of computational work. Like I really had no clue what I was doing. Um, and when you're a biochemist, you know, the ways that we see our proteins are typically you know, straight lines on a gel, either it's there or it's not, either it's at the right size or it's not. Or we have, you know, a functional assay. Like if your enzyme has activity, you will have a color change or you will see some sort of readout. And the first time that I put a protein that I purified onto a negative stain grid, you know, it's this tiny circle and then imaged it in the microscope. This was truly the first time I was seeing my work. You know, it wasn't a test tube. It wasn't a line on a gel. This was the first time I saw what I had done. Um, and that got me, you know, I was doing my rotations and that was the moment I knew I was joining this lab. I was like, this is cool. Like I can see the work I'm doing. <laughs> um, that was very cool. Um, and then really, you know, I've been very lucky to work like my boss, his name's David Wiesler. Um, we've been really lucky that you know, both of us have had a lot of successes over the last couple of years, but when we got the first paper accepted, you know, he was a brand new PI, I was a brand new grad student, and just going through that whole process for the first time, and then the paper finally being accepted was a really, really great day. You know, we knew that we had the first structure of a coronavirus spike protein, and it was about to be, you know, out in the world. This is before bioarchive. So we were the only ones who knew about it. And I was so excited to be able to share that. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And is that the protein? Like, is that the structure that we see in a lot of these articles? Yeah, so this was a while back. Um, but most of the structures that you see are of the spike protein. And, and, you know, early in 2020, we and, and another group at UT Austin um, solved the structure of the spike protein. And that was, that's the image you see is, is the work we were doing. <laughs> Very cool. That's really neat. Um, so you're, you, you're wrapping up your dissertation. Um, you know, this, this outbreak is being talked about. Had, had you already decided where you wanted to go for your postdoc or did that really like change things for you? It changed everything. <laughs> um, so I, was finishing up and you know like many people i had a paper that i wanted to finish and you know i wanted to defend but i i hadn't quite finished this paper um and so i said you know i want to stay three to six more months 
I'll finish this paper while I'm applying for, you know, my postdoc, figuring out what the best fit is for me. Because, you know, the last three to six months of your PhD is kind of terrifying and terrible and stressful. And I just needed some extra time to figure out what was coming next. Um, but, you know, we found out it was a coronavirus uh, early January. And then we found that the, the sequence was released um, like mid, early to mid January of 2020. Um, and, you know, right away, ordered genes was already planning experiments and, you know, no one knew at that point what was coming, right? I was like, okay, we're gonna, you know, figure out what the receptor is, figure out what the spike structure is, you know, see if we can get a pseudovirus system working. And then obviously it's hasn't stopped since. <laughs> wow. But at, even at that point, I was like, okay, this is one more project. You know, I'm still gonna do my other project in the background. One more project, we'll get the spike structure out, we're done. I had no idea that this was what was coming. <laughs> right. And that other paper is still not published, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. I still have one from grad school that is not out there yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where, where did the sequence come from? Like the initial sequence? Yeah. So the, um, this was by heroic efforts from um, a lot of Chinese scientists who basically sequenced the genome for the first time. And they made the decision to share the sequence publicly and openly. Um, and I first found it on Twitter, actually. So <laughs> someone tweeted, you know, the sequence is here. You can go to the guy's ed, you know, directory and find it. And, you know, literally I was sitting there immediately start Googling. I'm like, okay, got to get this directory, got to go here and, you know, just start figuring out what the sequence was. So really it was through knowledge sharing that we yeah. all were able to start working on this so fast. Interesting. It's been fascinating how much information share has been going on over Twitter, like during this time and almost like yes. more direct communication than I feel like we would have had without that type of platform. Yeah, Twitter and also BioArchive have changed completely over the course of the pandemic. And I think for the most part, I can say for the for the better. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are there are people who are sharing data on Twitter before it even gets to BioArchive. Like that's how fast we are all as a community sharing our data. Because mm -hmm. you have to, you know, the whole world is waiting on answers and on yep. what's happening. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask you a couple like more in-depth nerdy questions. Great, even, I'm here Even for though it. it might not be, <laughs> depending on who's listening. Um, so you find the sequence, you download it. What is in there? Like I, I'm, I'm less familiar. I mean, most of these viral genomes, how many proteins do they encode? Yeah, so it depends. Um, when I first downloaded, it's about you know thirty KB, so thirty thousand base pairs. Okay, pairs. so that's pretty big. Um, it's pretty. It, so coronaviruses are one of the larger um, RNA viruses, so they're huge. Um, I'm gonna get the number of proteins wrong, but it's somewhere in the seven to ten range. Okay. Um, and uh, most of them are non-structural, so they're they're you know helper proteins basically. Um, and then the spike is the spike, which is really what I focus on. I don't work on the nucleocapsid or, or any of those um, other proteins, which, you know, have extremely important roles in, you know, dampening our immune response or heightening our, our immune response or giving structure to, to the virus. But I really work on the spike, which is responsible for, you know, getting the virus into our cells and also is really the main um, target of our immune system because it's the protein that's on the exterior of the of the virus. Right. Um, but the spike is really at the at the end of the genome, and I, you know, went in. I am I'm also not a genome person, but you know, went in, found where the cutoffs that I expected the spike to be based on other coronaviruses, and then you know started translating into protein, started aligning, started you know we had literally no information about this other than it was a coronavirus. You know, I was like, what coronavirus is this spike most similar to? Can I predict what it's likely receptor is based on, you know, 
What does the receptor binding domain look like? What other coronavirus spike does this look like? And you know, just what which getting other as ones, much info. <laughs> which other ones did it look like? Did it match up to? So it, it was most similar to SARS, which we had studied and we had been looking at. You know, we had just put a paper out on neutralizing a neutralizing antibody against SARS, and so mm -hmm. you know, our mind starts racing like. Will it have the same receptor as SARS? Will neutralizing antibodies against SARS bind and or neutralize SARS-2? It wasn't yeah. named SARS-2 yet, but novel coronavirus 19 is what it was called at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all these questions just start racing and you're trying to identify as much as you can just from the sequence alone mm -hmm. and seeing what you can learn. So did you know early on that ACE2 was the receptor? So we, we thought that that was likely just because it was similar to SARS, but, you know, we had to go prove it in the lab. And so, you know, luckily we already had ACE2 in the lab. We had cells expressing ACE2 in the lab. And so mm -hmm. all we needed was, you know, get the gene, make the protein. Can we see binding interaction? And we did, and we, you know, characterized that binding interaction. And then the next question was, okay, we know it binds. Is this sufficient for, you know, for propagating entry. And so, you know, using those pseudoviruses where it's literally just the spike and have a cell that has ACE2 and a cell that doesn't have ACE2 and, you know, see what enters. And it turns out we and many, many other groups showed like, yes, ACE2 is the receptor. And yes, ACE2 is really majority of what you need to get this, this pseudovirus or this virus or anything it, into a cell. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Interesting. So I want to ask, because you're clearly someone who has spent a lot of time looking at these sequences and, and obviously had an early look into um, the sequence, how, how do you think about the hypothesis that potentially this was leaked from a laboratory? Yeah, I think, you know, we're scientists. And so I am personally a fan of the mantra, show me the data. So, you know, I am not ruling anything out, but until I see data that says, yes, this was a lab leak, no, this was not a lab leak, I don't think, I don't think anyone knows, and I don't think it even matters really. You know, we're here, we're in it, um, and we just need to find ways to stop the global pandemic as it is right now, unfortunately. Absolutely. I do think, you know, like we talked about earlier, this is not the first time that a virus has jumped from animals to humans. And so it's not unlikely that this, that SARS-2 is no different from SARS or from MERS. Um, and until we say, see data otherwise, that's, that's what we gotta mm -hmm. go with. But I think more data is always good. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm happy to see the data as it keeps coming out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there was a paper recently that was comparing some of the sequences from different projects that, you know, were studying uh, coronavirus before the pandemic and looking at some of the particular mutations that were present. Um, have you seen any of that data or do you have any thoughts on, on some of those claims? Um, I haven't looked in detail in the paper because, you know, again, it doesn't, it doesn't change the situation that we're yeah. in right now. Um, but I think until we, you know, until we as a whole scientific community can accept, you know, one or the other, it's going to be a hot debate no matter yeah, what. <laughs> for sure. On that note, you now work on therapeutics and mm -hmm. vaccine development. When did you kind of shift from more of the biology side to or structural biology to um, therapeutic or vaccine work and can you can you share um, what that has been like yeah so kind of towards the end of my phd um, like i said we had started working on you know neutralizing antibodies and this is kind of you know there there are multiple directions that you can take therapeutics one as is a preventative, like a vaccine. It stops you, it hopefully stops you from getting um, sick in the first place. And then a second is, you know, is there something we can do once you're already sick? 
Um, and in general, that's what you know antibody therapy is, is if you're already sick, what can we do for you? Um, and then there's kind of a crosstalk between these. You know, if we know that we have a neutralizing antibody or an antibody therapy that works, can we work backwards and say, how do we produce a vaccine that gets us this response? You know, it's kind of, it's both of them talk to each other and both of them learn from each other. And so towards the end of my PhD, I started working, you know, on neutralizing antibodies. And I started thinking about vaccines and, and we started even collaborating with um, Neil King's lab at the UW IPD, you know, kind of towards the end of my PhD, just seeing like, would this work in mice? Like, what can we see? You know, can we get a good re immune response from this type of vaccine? And then, you know, obviously pandemic happened. And, you know, our first thing was let's learn as much as we can about this virus. And so that's really what our first paper was structure, receptor, you know, do we have any crosstalk between known neutralizing antibodies from SARS or from other coronaviruses? And then, you know, the pandemic was still happening and we were sitting there and we were like, well, we are experts in coronavirus, like, and we work right down the hall from experts in vaccine design, like, let's merge two awesome fields and let's take our expertise and run with it and see how it goes. And that's really how it started. It started out of necessity. Like, we don't have a vaccine. Can we help? Yes, let's try. <laughs> that's awesome. And so what, what approach did you guys take with, with the vaccine? Because, you know, many of us are now familiar with um, the mRNA vaccines, um, you know, Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine are mRNA based, um, whereas more traditional vaccines um, have kind of a different um, backbone, I'll call it. Yeah. Um, so can you, can you talk us through the flavor of the type of vaccines that you guys have been working on? Yeah, so ours is totally different from both of those, um, which is fun and exciting, I think. Um, so ours is called a subunit protein vaccine. So no mRNA, um, no virus, it's literally just protein. Um, and what we've chosen to do is to kind of combine two things. So we've taken a piece of the coronavirus, um, specifically a piece of the spike protein. And what we've done is we've fused this to a um, designed protein. And so what I mean by designed protein is um, the UW Institute for Protein Design or IPD as I, as I previously called it, um, they are trying to build proteins um, from scratch. So nothing that's been found in nature and they're trying to say, can we take a sequence and give it a, and predict and design a three-dimensional shape and function. Um, and so that's really what we've done is we've fused a piece of the coronavirus spike protein to a designed protein that forms a beautiful, um, what we call a nano cage. So it's this beautiful 3D structure that's forming kind of a cage or like a soccer ball. And then on the end of the soccer ball, you have kind of these pieces of spike protein that are that are floating, floating off of it. Oh, wow. Okay. So the designed protein forms kind of like a viral capsid, but then it has the spike sticking out. Exactly. Instead of that's, like, it, that's what it looks like. <laughs> okay. Very cool. That's neat. So, and so you've tested this now, like wh where is it in the process? You've tested it in mice or yeah, so... non-human primates? Yeah, um, even further, it is in phase one, two clinical trials in humans. Oh, which wow. Which is amazing. Yeah, I didn't it's know amazing. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we started in mice and we basically, the well, we started just in the test tube and said, you know, does this behave like a vaccine? Like, do we express the proteins properly? Or are they folded? Are they behaving? And that checked. And so then we moved into mice and we said, okay, if we use this as a vaccine in mice, do mice get a strong immune response? And they did. It like blew us out of the water what we were expecting. But you know, these mice had extremely strong um, protective immune responses against SARS-2. So then we moved to non-human primates. And you know, same thing at every step of the way, this has just done better than we could have dreamed. And so, you know, we've gone from the test tube to mice to non-human primates, and now it's all the way in humans. Um, and it just got um, approved for 
phase three clinical trials. So we have wow. funding all the way through phase three. Yeah, it's amazing. That's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. <laughs> Congrats. And okay, like again, kind of nerdy question here, but one thing that I think is hard to you know, tease out from a lot of these trials that are going on. Is there, is there any point in the process of engineering these vaccines where you're able to compare them to like an mRNA approach or to another type of vaccine? Yeah. So at every step of the way, we tried to, we call it benchmark our vaccine. So you know, everyone's assays are slightly different. And so what we wanted to do was say, look, this is a brand new type of vaccine. Is it doing better than what's out there or at the time what was out there? And so when we first tested in mice, um, we benchmarked against just the spike protein. So not an mRNA vaccine, this wasn't, you know, available or out yet, um, but just spike protein, which is kind of a common base of, you know, it is the base of the mRNA vaccine. It's just in protein form rather than nucleic acid form. And what we found was, you know, our vaccine was behaving better and was giving a better immune response. So that was kind of our green light to say, okay, based on the standard at the time, this was before the mRNA vaccines, we are doing better. So we're comfortable, you know, moving ahead and pushing this. Um, And then at every step of the way since, you know, there have been a lot of people in clinical trials and now, you know, a lot of people have been vaccinated, which is amazing. And so we can take, you know, Sarah or plasma from people who have been immunized with an mRNA vaccine, for example, and benchmark how our, um, how our vaccine is doing, or we can benchmark against, you know, if you unfortunately got COVID, we can take your Sarah or blood or plasma, however you want to say it, and um, and benchmark is our vaccine doing better than natural infection? And and at every mm-hmm. step of the way, you know, it's been doing equivalent or better, which is really amazing. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's we incredible. don't have any data from the human trials yet, but mm-hmm. so this is all just in mice and non-human primates, which we're comparing to to humans. But I see. And are those trials happening like? in this area or? No, I wish. (laughs) Um, So the phase one, two clinical trial is um, being run by SK Biosciences in South Korea. Okay. Um, And hopefully we will see data soon, but who knows when it'll be ready. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you're eagerly anticipating getting some results. Yes. I I really want to know, you know, is this something that can help people? And if it is, like, that's just incredible to know that I've played a small role. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So has this experience changed what you want to do moving forward as a scientist? Like, I mean, I'm sure you had ideas, you know, back when you're getting your PhD about what your future would look like, but what, what are you excited to do now? Yeah, I have changed, you know, goals and ideas a number of times. Um, So when I started grad school, actually, the reason I came to grad school is I was really, and still am really passionate about teaching and education. And um, that was really my driving force for going to grad school is, you know, you need a PhD to be able to teach at the college level. And so that was really why I went. And then along the way, somehow, I've really fallen in love with research and with the unknown and, you know, figuring out burning questions that, you know, before the pandemic, only a few people cared about, but I was one of those people who cared. So it was really fun and exciting. Um, And so I, you know, when I graduated, I, I was thinking, you know, I'll stay on the research path, probably switch fields, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really attached to, to coronaviruses or to infectious disease, but I really just liked the questioning and the style of research. But I think now that I've really, you know, sunk my teeth into the whole process, right, from ordering the gene to vaccine design, um, it's really exciting to think that, you know, that I could do this for my career, for a living, that I could, you know, bring things from research stage to the market. Like that's, that's, it's been really fun. It's been really exciting. It's been really rewarding. Um, it's also been a lot of hard work, but <laughs> that's normal. <laughs> yeah. So 
I mean, so you have all this great experience now. Do you have people knocking on your door, ask, you know, <laughs> asking if you want to come work for them? Um, no, <laughs> but I do have, you know, it's been, it's been really interesting to, you know, reach out to my network and, you know, see what's out there and what's open. And I have been, you know, talking to people and thinking about my next steps, but it's also hard to move on when you have so many exciting things, you know, going on. You know, we don't just have this vaccine in, in clinical trials. We've also worked on, you know, monoclonal antibody therapy. We have a lot of stuff in the pipeline. And as much as I'm ready to grow and move on, it's also still super exciting being here. <laughs> That's a good place to be. It is. It is. But it also, I feel torn in two directions sometimes. <laughs> well, I, I think you shouldn't feel rushed to... <laughs> to move on. I mean, if it, if it is going that well, and you guys have so many good things going on, I think there's probably a lot of, a lot of benefit to sticking around a little longer. Although I know yeah. the, the pressures of our career field. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you know, for now I'm sticking with what's, what's, fun. And yeah. so far it's still fun. <laughs> well, it's certainly, I mean, like the, how far you guys have taken this from, um, you know, ordering the genes, like you said, I, to phase three, that's really incredible and yeah. uh, commend you for that. And, and all of your work on, on, you know, this disease and, um, making advances, I think as someone who's worked in, an adjacent field that's not infectious disease it's definitely felt like oh, I kind of wish I was working on you know <laughs> COVID and helping with the with with everything that's been going on um, I can tell you all the downsides if you want if that'll make you feel better <laughs> <laughs> well if you want to talk about it yeah let's hear them <laughs> um I think the the hardest thing you know is it's really hard to balance your own needs and time away from work when, you know, especially early 2020, you know, we needed answers so badly. And, you know, I knew it, my boss knew it, every, like literally everyone is asking you and waiting for your results. And there's a lot of pressure to, to create good quality science as fast as humanly possible. And that mean, that means, you know, sacrificing, your nights, your weekends, your mornings, your sleep, your everything, because to do it as fast as we needed to and as reproducibly, you have to be in lab a lot. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot just, there's a lot riding on you, you know, you, uh, you and the small field of coronavirus experts who started in 2020. Now the field is massive, which is incredible and amazing, but, you know, there weren't that many of us starting who, you know, everyone was waiting for us to find mm -hmm. what to do next. What kind of hours were you pulling in, in those <laughs> days? Uh, that's not a, that's not a fun question. <laughs> um, there was, you know, there was a series of weeks to months where it, you know, I was there till late, late, late at night. I would get home, sleep, wake up and go right back and there was no weekend. There was no yeah. free time. And, you know, you know, science takes a lot of planning, but I've never before planned my experiments like down to the hour per mm -hmm. day for weeks out because like experiment A had to work to set up experiment B to set up experiment C to repeat the whole thing to make sure it worked again. Like mm -hmm. it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and was all there... this while the world was shutting down and, you know, you you know, I was walking to work on dead, empty streets. And like my, my work life was very different from mm -hmm. most people's work life in March of 2020. Yeah. Was there a point where you were able to kind of take a break and, you know, step away from the bench? And when yes. was that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, we all, you know, there's a huge team of us who are working on this and um we all needed to you know share responsibilities so we could all stay happy and sane and you know thinking of the next big idea and the next experiment that we wanted to do 
Um, but I would say, you know, by summer 2020, we were breathing again, you know, things had, had been moving and, you know, we had gotten kind of the first wave of really intense work out of the way. Um, and kind of since then it's come in waves, you know, you have really hectic three weeks and then like a slower down week and then really hectic and then slower down week. And that's just kind of become the new pace. <laughs> yeah. We're, I'm curious, like, cause I, I went to, I went back to lab in like April of 2020, um, not working on coronavirus, yeah. but you know, I think there can be a similar urgency. Um, did, what was your thought process like around the actual, like, you know, risk of you getting COVID and, you know, just walk us through that, like over the course <laughs> of time. And cause, you know, I think it's like this interesting experience of like, you know, going to lab and working on this thing and showing up every day and also acknowledging that like, you know, you're at risk yourself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was a lot of emotions and a lot of roller coasters and a lot of, you know, you, you had to justify to yourself. You're like, is the work I'm doing, you know, worth me going to lab, right? Like the whole goal was, you know, if everyone just stays home, we can contain this. And it's like, well, I'm working on the thing we're trying to contain. Is that worth, you know, leaving my house and going and doing these things? And then, yeah, the other side is the, the self-preservation side, right? <laughs> like, like, do I feel comfortable going to work and doing these things? And um, I don't know what this says about me, but I, I never questioned it. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is the most important thing I could be doing. Um, I'm going to be as safe as I possibly can. You know, I remember the first time that we started wearing masks at work and it felt weird. And then I went to the grocery store and, you know, no one in Seattle had a mask yet. And I wore my mask to the grocery store because in my head, I was like, I'm a danger to you all. You all have been home for the last two weeks and I'm the dangerous one. So I need to like, and yeah, it was, it's, it was a weird time. <laughs> yeah. And even, you know, you know, you're working late and, and one of the things that, you know, you do when you're working late to get yourself home safely at the time was, you know, you, you take an Uber or you take a Lyft. And then it became a point where, well, that's actually not safe for me to do. So I had, you have to balance like, how late do you stay versus like getting yourself home safe because you can't take an Uber because you can't be in contact with people. Like all these logistical things that we took for granted before the pandemic, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it And I think it's interesting because I think one of the one of the aspects that was surprising to me was also like I think when you work in a lab you become adjusted to protocols and you know uh, safety practices and wearing gloves and having a piece of plexiglass between you and your cells right. and for me it felt like after you know going to work for months it was like, well, as long as I kind of, you know, have my safety protocols, like I'm not going to get sick and that's fine. Yeah. And I feel very comfortable like out in the world. Whereas a lot of people who didn't have that experience and weren't going to work and were in their homes, like had a lot more fear and, totally. um, you know, anxiety around like going out. Um, totally. And I think everyone has gone through their own journey and their own roller coasters of, do I stay home? Can I go out? How do I feel about going out? Am I washing all my groceries? Am I not washing all my groceries? You know, like we've gone through a lot of phases of pandemic <laughs> as yeah. humans and as scientists. Definitely. Did you know early on that like, I mean, cause obviously we weren't sure, a lot of people weren't sure about the, you know, infectivity from surfaces. So that was like a big concern. Did you know relatively early that it wasn't as big of an issue as? Not, you know, not any more than any other scientist or well-informed individual. You know, I remember on BioArchive when the, when the surface paper came out and, you know, I, I know some of the people who worked on it. And so, 
you know, we all saw the paper and we were like, okay, it can survive on this. I forget now, but like plastics for two days and paper for one day, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as scientists, we kind of take that and run with, you know, it's data. And so I said, okay, plastics two days. So when I, when I buy something plastic from the grocery store, it sits in a little box for two days and then we're, we're good. Um, But I think we also know as scientists that experiments are, you know, they're done in a, in a box or in a vacuum or, Mm -hmm. or whatever they're done in. And it, it's not the real world. It's not perfect. So no, I didn't know, but it doesn't surprise me. Like hindsight, it makes sense that it's it's different than what happens in the hood or in the lab or. Right. Or even from like a infection standpoint of a respiratory illness. Interesting. Yeah. I remember when that paper came out and it was disconcerting you know? it's yeah. like oh god yeah how, and then you're like how many surfaces am I touching in a day like how yeah. have I survived the last however many years of my life touching all of these things right <laughs> thank goodness for immune systems they are amazing <laughs> seriously um okay I have I have one other kind of nerdy question about um how we measure like case positivity with the qpcr assay do you have any thoughts on on that and like has your has your thinking on that changed at all over time um i am definitely not a you know that is totally not my my field of expertise um and i think you know there's there's all this debate of you know like PCR versus rapid and, you know, how long are you positive after you're actually positive and how, when is a test too sensitive? And, you know, I think these are all really important questions, but I think if, if I step back and I take, you know, my, my biochemist, my very minute detail hat off, and I start thinking on a population level, you know, in my opinion, the most important thing that we can know is are you infectious or are you not infectious? And are you about to be infectious or are you not about to be infectious? And so, you know, I think testing is super important and there are definitely rights and wrongs or betters and worses, but in general, like I'm very for getting all the tests that you possibly get. (laughs) Yeah. But test, test agnostic, like any, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, there's also, you know, like we said, this pandemic has been extremely expensive and there's, you know, price and, and time turnover differences between the tests. And like, these are all things that we have to think about, but from a population level, I think all tests all the time are good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did some, some digging into some of the like um, rapid tests as mm-hmm. well. And I think you know, a few got approved here and there, but FDA kind of dragged its feet a little bit on some of them. And I think it could have been beneficial to have more rapid tests available to more people, you know, at a certain point in time in the pandemic when it could have, you know, allowed schools to reopen earlier and things like that. Totally. Or, you know, even just especially uh, schools are a great example, you know, if everyone could take a rapid test, you know, on their way into school, and then it's kind of a yes, no, it's, it's much better than the temperature checks or the, you know, daily attestations that people might've been doing. If you could Mm -hmm. literally get a yes, no every day, like people can feel a lot safer and a lot better about it. Um, But, you know, that's expensive and it's invasive. And, you know, there's all, there's so many factors Mm -hmm. to think about. It's, it's incredible yeah. what we've learned in the pandemic about not just the virus, but about humanity. <laughs> That's so true. Um, so, so to kind of wrap up, you know, we both live in Seattle. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, I think, re- fared re- relatively well through this pandemic and um, the city's kind of reopening, summer is here. Yeah. Um, what are you looking forward to most about this year, you know, either personally or professionally? 
Yeah. Um, so I actually just came back from a vacation where I got to hang out with my new niece. I'm a brand new aunt. So that was very, very exciting. And one of the things I was looking forward to and hope to do more of in the future. Um, but honestly, I'm a avid hiker. And so just the sunshine coming out again has given me some life and some energy and some excitement again. And so I'm just excited to be outside in the mountains, in the lakes, everywhere I can be that's not the lab when I have a break. <laughs> totally. Do you have any favorite hikes? Um, yeah, I think for Seattle natives, my favorite, you know, doable hike is, is Gothic Basin. It's, oh, it's yeah. gorgeous. It is, you know, if you're not from Seattle, it's it's just another world. Like the first time I did it, I'm not from Seattle originally, and it was just this fairy tale mountain land, and I loved it. <laughs> it's that one's incredible. I've done that yeah. one a couple times, and it's so awesome. Yeah, and you know, colors at sunset and sunrise, and just all this, you know, all this powerful rock surrounding you it's yeah yeah have you done the the backpack up because I haven't I've only done the hike I would definitely recommend the backpack okay Just, you know spending a night up there and also you know there's a lot of other side hikes you can do off of gothic and it's yeah it's incredible isn't there there's like an old mine back there or something too that could be true I don't know that though okay. <laughs> what's your favorite hike if you hike? <laughs> um you know, last summer I had a chance to do El Dorado with mm -hmm. um, one of my coworkers who's a mountaineering guide. Nice. And we did the like knife's edge summit, nice. which had been a goal of mine for a long time. And it was just probably the most amazing summit I've, I've done nice. in my life. So I've not done that one and I will put it on my list. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we did it in a day, which I would not recommend. Good tip. Good tip. <laughs> I lost a couple toenails, yeah. <laughs> but it was worth it. It was worth it. It was really amazing. I mean, just like you, you summit like it forms this uh, snow edge, mm -hmm. um, and so you hike along the edge, um, and it's I don't know, it's very surreal looking. That sounds right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, you should you should check it out. And it's in like the North Cascades. So you get views of like glacier and, you know, nice. all the surrounding mountains. It's really, really an awesome uh, view up there. So nice. But yeah, I haven't done too much mountaineering yet this year. So got to get back out there. <laughs> yeah, the season is upon us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been actually working a lot in the labs. So. <laughs> no, I mean, yay, but no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it comes in waves, like you said. And, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I think when you've worked in this field long enough, you just get used to that. Like, oh yeah, I'm in like a work phase right now. Yeah. And I'm in the lab on the weekends and yep. Yep. Then you kind of reset and totally, totally. But, and you know, it's exciting. Like the stuff you're doing, the stuff like science is exciting. It's fun. That's why we work so much. <laughs> I know. Yeah, actually we, we were working me and my RA today, we were super busy in the lab. And then I just like looked at the results right before I had to come home to like get set up for this. And yep. I, was, I got some good hits. Yay! So I was like, oh, yay. <laughs> worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> it was worth it. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, during the interview? I don't think so. We, we touched on most of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I missed anything, um, I think we got through all the questions that I had. I think the only other thing that I usually, you know, I try to say is, you know, like we have four approved or three approved vaccines in the U S. Um, and you know, that's incredible and amazing. And hopefully we can, you know, share these globally, but really the reason that this was able to happen is because so many people like me and before me, and at the same time as me, were working on 
really a lot of variety of things that, you know, at the time there was no pandemic, no one cared about coronaviruses, no one cared about mRNA vaccines, no one cared about so many things that we now are looking at the news every day for. And, you know, that's all because of public scientific funding. And it's not just funding the current pandemic, it's funding everything and anything because you never know what the next important thing is. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think one thing that's kind of unique and incredible about um, some of the research that happens here is that it really has allowed for us to make these types of breakthroughs and identify treatments that are so effective and, and life-changing. And I think, I mean, for many of us in the field, um, it's just such a privilege to be able to say, you know, I'm fully vaccinated and I can go to work and not be worried about getting my coworkers sick or totally bringing something home to my family. And um, yeah, yeah, it's been, I mean, I think that's definitely been the light, you know, at the end of the tunnel for a lot of us. So yeah, that's what we're all, you know, smiling into summer of 2021. with. <laughs> it's hopefully a sore arm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say thank you for all the work that you've done on coronavirus and understanding these viruses and then, you know, pivoting and really working on developing novel vaccines. And I think, um, you know, just the, the type of vaccine you guys have developed um, is really exciting. And I'm, I'm eager to see the data and uh, <laughs> I can't wait. Hopefully you can update me on whenever it comes out and, um, and, you know, it's like, it's just been exciting to finally see um, that type of data. Like when the Pfizer paper first came out, it was I know. just like, unbelievable um yeah so yeah good things ahead yeah and thank you so much as... for joining us on the show and, and yeah. sharing all of your experiences yeah thank you so much for having me this was awesome and I really appreciate it <laughs> yeah absolutely that wraps up our interview with Lexi Walls. Wow, I learned so much about her work on coronaviruses and her experience working as a scientist during the pandemic, as well as some of the novel vaccines that she's been working on. Um, it was great to chat with you, Lexi, and thank you all for listening to our show. If you can subscribe, like, leave us a comment. Uh, we really appreciate the support and thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.